even wrong in this situation. He took a pinch in the back. He got beamed for crying out loud. We used heart attack. Please. Managers on a major league baseball team don't make decisions. Credibility in this situation is worse than losing your job. Was it over with the Travis Bond Pro The castration of the major league baseball managers we know it. Ask me about my win. Around this time of year, you hear kind of embedded in our heads what is going on in the world of baseball and that teams are either going to be buyers and sellers, buyers and sellers, pimps and whores, pimps and whores, to quote the great fake Dean Lewis from the movie Accepted. And I'm here to tell you why that's not necessarily the case. Yes, In baseball, the trading deadline, just like most other sports, is a good time for a team to evaluate where they are realistically in their search for a championship. It could be maybe a building type of season where you're overachieving and your goals may not necessarily be to win the whole thing. Maybe it might be to finish with a winning record. Maybe it might be to make the postseason and then see what happens. But it's a good time to evaluate what you need to do to get better. And one of the negative things, one of the things that are incorrect about what the media and the baseball media tries to portray is the fact that you could either be a buyer or a seller when it comes to baseball and the trading deadline. And I think each individual entity as a baseball team has the right to operate its own way. If you're a team that maybe had higher expectations and the prospects of getting to the postseason do not look good or have not gotten any better by the day, you do not owe it to the other Major League Baseball teams that are having better seasons to allow them to better themselves at your expense. In other words, whatever crap young players that teams are willing to just toss to you so they could get good and better players to better themselves is not necessarily a good business practice in itself, but it gets spoken about all the time. All you got to do is hear John Q. Baseball Insider, whether it's some of the guys you hear all the time on MLB Network and ESPN and all the other sports outlets, or if it's you know this 15 to 17-year-old baseball fan that all of a sudden envisions himself doing the same thing, him or herself. You know, I don't want to leave out all the great young women that contribute to the great sport of baseball. But the the issue that I have is that a baseball team has to be one or the other. I think whether you're a general manager of a baseball team, whether you're a team president and owner, what you owe to the fans is not a line in the sand. You owe it to your fans to have the best baseball team for a given season, but also have the best professional sports organization going forward. If a team that is expected to lose 90 games or maybe 85 games or whatever, whatever it takes to not make the postseason in baseball, they should not be the dumping ground or the uh, you-know-what dumpster of a team that happens to be having a better season. You've heard me talk before in the National League, the expectations as they existed with the St. Louis Cardinals, the San Diego Padres, and New York Mets, and it's been a direct parallel their failures with the success proportionately of the Miami Marlins, the Arizona Diamondbacks, and Cincinnati Reds. And those teams, the, the, the latter, 
aren't necessarily in a position where they should be expected to win the World Series, but their postseason expectations are a little bit more. The expectation is that those three teams are going to the postseason now, and they should act that way. Now, they may have different business models. The Cincinnati Reds and their owner may not be looking to pay a player anything. The Miami Marlins and his, their owner, Bruce Sherman, may not be interested in putting extra salary towards players. Now, obviously, there's ways to combat that. There's teams that are willing to take on salary of players to send them a certain way to get better players in return. And the question that I always ask, you know, it's easy to be on the taking end of a baseball trade. You could be that team that has that high expectation, is expected to go out there and win, and it's nice to get better. It's nice to see good quality players added to a core that you've already built to a certain point. But are they willing to pay that cost? Are they willing to give up legitimate, good young players that could help the team they're trading with down the road? This was something that was a lot easier to do in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. As we've gotten more analytical and we've gotten a better understanding of the pipeline of young players as they're coming through baseball, we could see them play at many different levels in the minor leagues and see them hone their skills before they come up to the majors and may not necessarily know what they're going to be as pros, but have a better understanding than you did 30, 40 years ago. Teams are less willing to part with that. Fans of those prospective teams are less interested in doing that. And that's where you've kind of had the doldrums of the baseball trading deadline. And you've seen, without, with some exceptions, for the most part, teams dumping good players for limited returns or lottery tickets. And you're seeing top prospects for each one of the 30 teams being held onto. So my suggestion and what I've said before, if you're really in it, if the goal this year is to go out there and win a World Series, maybe the expectation should be to part with something that could help another team down the road. That's mostly part number two, but most the part of number one that I'm trying to get into is the fact that you don't have to be a buyer or a seller. Jumping over to professional football for a second, you've heard um, over the last, pretty much since Le'Veon Bell held out for an entire season with the Pittsburgh Steelers, um, he didn't want to play on that franchise tag. He says, hey, if I get hurt, you know, the team's going to move on from me. I'm getting no chance at a big contract, the contract that I'm pursuing down the road. And obviously, if you look at it, there's the, the expectation of the player playing out that season and becoming a free agent. And that's kind of what you get with the franchise tag as it stands in the world of professional football. Um, Saquon Barkley, Derrick Henry, Josh Jacobs, several other players are sitting in similar situations. Melvin Gordon was talking about how it's almost impossible to not get to, to get a job in the NFL. And he, of course, has, has since signed a contract. But there is an issue. NFL running backs are not getting paid. Their value is not what it was. Now, some of it is the salary cap situation. The players and the owners have agreed to a salary cap. 
perhaps the players may have a little more leverage and say maybe the salary cap should uh, be expanded. Maybe there should be more money aside to pay the running backs the amount of money that they deserve. But uh, to me, this is an issue that has come to, I I think it's more about usefulness and the fact that it's easy to replace a very good running back or a pro bowl running back or an all pro running back with somebody else that could do some similar things. You're seeing whether it's Gibbs or Robinson, the two guys that were taken in a, you know the first round of the draft this past year, you could bring fresher legs in there to do a lot of the same things. And it's making a position of running back not very valuable. And I hate to throw a random fantasy sports point in here. Most fantasy football teams are set with two starting running backs. I, I think there should be some understanding of the flexibility of those positions and maybe there is more value in a wide receiver you should have a starting running back and maybe an extra flex spot instead of two starting running backs because anybody that's in a fantasy football league understands how difficult it is to find quality running backs you're lucky if you have one It's hard to have that second one that you're able to start when you're forced to start every week. So the third thing I wanted to bring up before we get into saving sports history, and we're going to change it to saving the past ball show, because my desire to do this in front of a crowd of very few is going away by the wayside. Shohei Otani, I'd be very surprised if he were to get traded. Now, Artie Marino, the owner of the Los Angeles Angels, is a very interesting and polarizing figure. He could authorize the pulling of a trade like this. I think ultimately he wants to pay Shohei Otani what he wants. I don't think there's any issue with the amount of money that Shohei Otani is expected to get in free agency. Obviously, he's able to do things that have not been done in the history of baseball before. You know, to be a 40-home run hitter, to be a potential Cy Young award-winning candidate as a starting pitcher uh, with the ability to strike out over 200 batters a season, hit the ball hard as hell and far, far away, and throw the ball 100 miles an hour, that, that's a unique skill set that is probably going to transcend how a player is paid in the world of baseball. Does Artie Moreno want to be the one to give that contract? And you've paid Mike Trout. And they've also wasted a lot of money on some other players. Anthony Rendon, uh, Justin Upton, uh, going back to the days of C.J. Wilson and Josh Hamilton. You know, a lot of similar players that they've thrown money at that hasn't necessarily worked out. And then the fact that nobody likes the Angels. People like to point to the irrelevance of the Angels and how nobody in the Los Angeles area cares. Nobody in California cares. Well, they're still a Major League Baseball team, and I've said all along that I believe in parity, and I think the Angels should do what's right for that organization, and if they can't extend Shohei Otani during the 2023 season, they have to make sure that they're in the mix to offer him the most lucrative contract in both years and dollars. I'd be shocked, outside of the fact that nothing would surprise me with the owner, if Shohei Otani would be traded, I don't. I, and I and I'm more 
I'd be more shocked for the team that would trade for him for just a couple months and no necessary leverage that would probably be required to bring in a player like this. You're going to give up top prospects, which it, the Angels certainly should be asking for, per my discussion before, and not have a guarantee that you're going to be able to sign him long term. Makes it tough for a team to trade for him. So once again, I'd be shocked if Shohei Otani gets dealt before the deadline of August first. So saving the past ball show, I mean saving sports history. Today is the 23rd day of July 2023. On the year of 1866, the Cincinnati Red Stockings, or known at the time, the, the Cincinnati Baseball Club, formed, becoming the first professional baseball team to organize. That's 1866. 1956, the Baseball Hall of Fame announced two new members, Joe Cronin, one of the better infielders and second baseman in the history of Major League Baseball, won the World Series multiple times, and iconic first baseman Hank Greenberg, who lost a couple years in World War II, was one of the most dominant power hitters in the history of Major League Baseball, and a we're ranking the top 100 offensive position players to ever play according to the Passball Show and JohnPielli.com. Hank Greenberg ranks number 21. Both him and Cronin were elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1956. 1984, Dan Quisenberry recorded his 200th save. The reason that this is relevant is it gives me another plug to ask, why isn't Dan Quisenberry in Baseball's Hall of Fame? What did Bruce Suter accomplish? that was more dominant than what Dan Quisenberry did over a similar period of time. Lee Smith is in the Baseball Hall of Fame, and I think deservedly, but Quisenberry, for a short period, was just as dominant. He was right up there with Goose Gossage, right up there with Raleigh Fingers. And you look at his career against Bruce Suter's, and I may even take Quisenberry's career over Bruce Suter's. Quisenberry belongs in the Baseball Hall of Fame. 1987, one of the more unjust things happened in baseball. And obviously you could see that the, uh, the, the writing was on the wall, that it was probably going to happen. But the Red Sox waived Bill Buckner on this day in 1987, just a handful of months away before he was one of their best players, the number three hitter. A uh, guy well on his way to 3,000 hits, had a ball not rolled through his legs in the 10th inning of Game 6 of the World Series against the New York Mets, allowing the Mets to, by the way, score a run there. The game was already tied and eventually win the World Series. So much blame goes towards Bill Buckner, and I know Red Sox fans forgave him in 2008 when they had him walk out on the field after they won two World Series championships. But he was very unjustly treated over something, the Red Sox not winning, that wasn't necessarily his fault. A Red Sox team in 1946 failed to win a World Series. A Red Sox team in 1967 and 1975 failed to win the World Series. And likely, had Bill Buckner fielded that ground ball by Mookie Wilson and somehow beat him to the bag, extending that game to, ex to the 11th inning, there's no guarantee that the Red Sox win that game. The Mets may have won that game anyway. That being said, had that play not happened, I believe Buckner gets 3,000 hits 
and is in the Baseball Hall of Fame. 1994, Don Mattingly became the sixth Yankee to ever record 2,000 hits. And I didn't think it would be this easy to name the other five. And I ran, ran it right off the top of my head. Had to confirm it. I wanted to make sure I was 100% right. But Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, Joe DiMaggio, Yogi Berra, Mickey Mantle were the other five Yankees to that point to get 2,000 hits in a Yankee uniform. 2,000. Lance Armstrong won his second of his seven consecutive Tour de France titles. And the reason that I want to talk about this is this was one of the better accomplishments in sports history, obviously one that's overshadowed by his use of performance-enhancing drugs, which, once again, this is one of the uh, uh, poorest um, overseen situations in sports history. And I think it's a terrible job by sports like baseball and football and even basketball to not necessarily identify every single player that's used performance-enhancing drugs. So if we don't have a barrier set off of what's right and what's wrong, and when it comes to chemicals, not understanding from the beginning and its origins which chemicals are over the line and okay, when you've got GNC that sells all types of products that enhance performancing, performances of players, but select ones that are picked and chosen to be good and to be okay. I don't judge players based off of the use of performance-enhancing drugs. Lance Armstrong's a seven-time Tour de France winner, won his second in a row on this date in uh, on, uh, 2000. You go to the year of 2006, Tiger Woods, who perhaps, if you talk about drugs in sports, there could have been golfers that could have been using PEDs. Tiger Woods is still one of the greatest golfers of all time. Judge him, not judge him. Say that there's not enough evidence. I'm okay with that. But even if he did, I don't care. Tiger Woods was a dominant golfer. He won the Open, his second straight Open championship on this day in 2006. Mark Burley threw the 18th perfect game in Major League Baseball history. Domingo Herman, who threw one this year. I, I, I spoke in length about how I was shocked that we saw another perfect game in baseball history. But Burley, the 18th of the 24, on this day in 2009. Births on this day, the 23rd of July. Pee Wee Reese was born in 1918. Don Drysdale, 1936. You obviously know two legendary Dodger players and World Series champions and Hall of Famers. Gary Payton, the glove, was born on this day in 1968. Obviously, uh, Naismith Pro Basketball Hall of Famer, one of the best defensive players in the history of the National Basketball Association, and one of the better point guards to ever play in the sport. Los Angeles Lakers head coach Darvin Ham, who deserves credit for leading the team to the postseason, and a, a very good run, taking over a team that looked like it was shot realized its only issue was Russell Westbrook got him the hell off that team and all of a sudden they started winning games. He was born on this day in 1973. So was Nomar Garcia-Para, one of the more dominant shortstops of the late 90s and early 2000s. Isn't put up in the echelon of Alex Rodriguez and Derek Jeter and even Miguel Tejada, but deserves to be. He was as good, if not better, at certain points of his career than those other shortstops. 1998, 
Phoenix Suns forward DeAndre Ayton, the one-time number one overall pick in the NBA draft, was born on this day in 1998. 1975, we lost Pro Football Hall of Fame safety Emlyn Tunnel. He was a two-time NFL champion with the 1956 Giants and 1961 Green Bay Packers, six-time first-team All-Pro, nine-time Pro Bowler, died on this day in 1975, and James Jordan in 1993, the father of legendary basketball player, GOAT, Michael Jordan, was murdered, or his body was found this day in 1993 in one of the more terrifying and sad occurrences in the history of this world. This is the Passball Show brought to you by JohnPLA.com, by St. Aloysius Church in Jackson, New Jersey, by Two Ways, One Passion Food Truck located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Uh, you can follow the Passball Show if you want, if anybody really gives a flying shit. Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music, videos on YouTube. God bless you, and as always, I'll see you on the other side. Chris Bryant was on the Chicago Cubs roster opening day. I have many leather-bound books. My apartment smells of rich mahogany. Why don't you give it all or a majority of it to the team that wins the freaking World Series? I was going to listen to that, but then I just carried on in my life. Now they come out as the biggest Major League Baseball manager apologist. That'll only make someone work just hard enough not to get fired. Because hitters are going out there saying, I'm either going to hit a home run or I'm going to strike out. And if I don't get a pitch that I feel like I could drive out of the park, I'm not even supposed to be here today. Especially prospect whores and hoarders are going to be a little pissed off at me when I say this. I'm a dude who believes a dude disguises another dude. There are only two managers in baseball's Hall of Fame who have losing records. One of them is the iconic Connie Mack, who you can say, in spite of winning five World Series championships as a manager, could be in as much as a pioneer. And what side of the spectrum they're on? Were they pitching? Were they batting? If your favorite team was pitching and a ball got inside and hit a batter, there's no way it could have been on purpose. But if, if you were a fan of the team that was batting and a ball got inside and hit somebody or went behind somebody's head, absolutely 100% unequivocally, that pitcher was throwing at they put their tail between their legs and decided they're going to do exactly what they're told. You damn well right better give him a contract extension. You damn well right better make him the manager over the next series of years. 35 years ago, I could have loaned your parents the money for an abortion. 